This is a CBC Podcast. So, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm pretty passionate about a certain type of corn chip. It's got a pleasant triangle shape, a delicious cheesy taste, and little flavor craters to blast you with seasoning, all to create a perfect crunch. It's just, mwah, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. I mean, I even co-wrote a catchy song about chips. Crunch them, munch them, love them for their taste. Meal time, snack time, any time could be chip time. Nothing like a chip, nothing like a chip, chip. So, yeah, you could say I'm a little bit of a super fan, but even I'm aware that a diet of mostly chips is not that good for you. But why? Why is the most delicious thing not good for you? Why do I find that certain junk foods are so tasty in the first place? Like, when I eat gummy worms, I can't just eat one. I'll always end up eating the whole bag and sometimes still want more. And if humans have evolved over millions of years, shouldn't I be craving things that are actually beneficial for me instead of stuffing myself with stuff that's potentially hurting my body? So why can't I stop eating junk food? Ty asked why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. Can we keep eating meat without destroying the planet? Why doesn't everyone love math? What will money look like in the future? Why do we laugh? And why do we love junk food so much? My little brother Kian really loves the fried chicken chain Popeyes and all kinds of other fast foods. And he has a theory about why we're so drawn to these things. I mean, the thing I like about Popeyes is because the chicken is like so juicy and tasty. And I don't know what makes it like that. But whatever it is, I love it. And I cannot get enough of it. Maybe it's not something specific. Maybe just the ingredients they buy and they put in the batter or whatever. So you think that the thing that's like drawing us to it is also what's like so making it so bad for us? I think it's kind of like, junk food is kind of like a cigarette, right? Like they want you to really want it so you spend money on it. Hmm, that's really interesting. I think Kian's idea is that There's this one magical secret ingredient that makes people go bananas for junk food, and they have to just keep going back for more. But it turns out there's actually quite a few ingredients that hook us in, and they're not so secret either. Those food that are really heavily ultra-processed, they kind of always have three important ingredients. Usually there is a combination of two of them. It's either fat and sugars, or salt and umami and sugars. That's Janina Papino. She's an associate professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
Janina says that we already know the delicious ingredients in junk food that hook us. They're salt, sugar, or something with lots of umami, which is a savory flavor that you can taste in miso soup or tomato sauce. In processed foods, these are often combined with fat because fat helps us taste those flavors better. I mean, that makes sense. Even in my favorite chips, I can identify that salty taste, the umami-filled cheesy goodness, and it's definitely got fatty oils in there to pull it all together. But why am I so drawn to those flavors in the first place? Well, you're not alone in that preference. And I think that the reason that we like, uh, you like this food is because they are really rooting into our biology. We are born, for example, attracted to sweetness, to fat. And these are things that are kind of due to our ancestry, the way we evolve. Our brain is craving uh, foods that are packed on calories, that are safe to eat. So many times we think sweetness as a signal of saying this is sweet to eat. Um, and so you're kind of responding with your very biology or almost with your stone age <laughs> brain uh, on going for the things that you think are important for you to survive. The idea is hundreds of thousands of years ago, we humans learned that sweet things like a piece of fruit from a tree was usually safe to eat and packed with a lot of calories that would give us the energy we needed to get through the day. And food scientists like Janina have done research to show that this preference is so wired into our DNA that we love sugar from day one. A sweet taste is one of our oldest rewards. Um, so when babies are born, if you give them a drop of sugar in their mouth, they will accept it very happily, they'll smile. And it has been shown that this sweet taste, they also release endorphins, so uh, they can cope with pain better. We're born with strong feelings about other tastes as well. Uh, these are two things that are hardwired in our brain. And when babies are born, they will really get attracted to sweet tastes and they will be very vigorously avoid bitterness. And that's why many kids avoid green leafy vegetables because they taste bitter. Imagine a group of caveman babies just learning to crawl and popping anything they find into their mouths. Bitterness was a really big red flag telling them that, no, this plant is toxic, bad. And sweetness was this big green light saying that this plant is safe and packed with energy. This flavor preference was a way to protect our ancestors. You hear that, Mom? My cravings are actually a survival mechanism. And this isn't unique to humans. So if you study the behavior of early on, like in rodents, like rats, uh, look at chimpanzees, orangutans, like you can see in many species, they all react with the same facial expression. When you give them something sweet, they accept it, they, they swallow it, they make them happy. If you give them something bitter, you know, they also show the same stereotypical response of like gaping and protruding, you know, putting your tongue out like yucky. We know that junk food is packed with sugars and fats because humans want to store them away for later. But Janina tells me we are also obsessed with them because they give you instant access to good feelings. So both sugar and fats, when we put it in, your, in our mouth, they release this uh, dopamine, which is a molecule that is a feel-good molecule in your brain. And 
when you consume a fruit, for example, it comes with fibers, it comes with a lot of vitamins, other micronutrients. And just the fact that it has fibers, it delays its absorption from the stomach. And so it takes some time since you eat it until you have the rush of sugar in your blood climbing up. Right. And fruit takes a while to work through your system. I mean, it's more chewing, it has to work its way through your digestive system, and the sugar has to slowly be absorbed by your body. So what happens with junk food? But when you get a junk food, these are so ultra-processed food that when you consume it very rapidly, super quickly, they are absorbing the stomach and with a blink of an eye, they're increasing the, the sugar in your blood, a big rush of sugar. And that produces a big peak of this feel-good molecule, dopamine. And that's why you feel so good and so you want it. Dopamine also is related with our memory. And so you remember that flavor, that food, that make you feel so good and you want to have it again. Which leads to a feeling I'm very familiar with, and I think you guys are too. The sugar rush. So this evolutionary skill to find and identify safe, energy-rich food was incredibly handy back in the caveman days when you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. You find the sugary fruit or fatty meat, eat a lot of it, and your body stores it for energy. But bring this skill to the modern day, and it's kind of problematic. We are in a mismatch environment because our brain hasn't evolved at the same pace than the environment. And so it is kind of our Stone Age brain trying to survive in this new environment when everything is so easy available and you have so many diversities of products that taste sweet and fatty and, and they are irresistible. It's like our environment has completely changed, but our cave people tummies have stayed the same. We're still craving sugars and fats, except we're surrounded by it all the time and we don't have to work that hard to get them anymore. I mean, I can go into any supermarket or corner store, even vending machine, and there are rows and rows of ultra-processed calories ready for me to munch on. I mean, they're everywhere and it's cheaper than getting a carton of fresh strawberries. But why is that? I found the perfect person to answer this question. I'm Marion Nessel. I'm professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University Emerita. I retired in 2017. So, Marion, what does your research say about why junk food is often cheaper than, say, foods that we know are healthy? Oh, that's an easy question to answer because it makes lots of money for the manufacturers. Um, food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses. So food manufacturers discovered that if they make these crispy, crunchy, delicious foods that everybody likes, that have a lot of sugar and fat and salt in them, have lots of calories, um, are shelf-stable, these are enormously profitable products. And they're made uh, widely available, and they're not very expensive, usually because of government policies that keep the cost of basic food ingredients very low. It makes sense that, you know, at the end of the day, a chip company will want to make the most appetizing chip flavors. But 
how did this change happen? Like, I don't think this is how you ate when you were my age, right? Uh, this happened in about 1980, when uh, because of government policies, food was enormously overproduced. And in the United States, uh, we went from having roughly 3,000 calories a day available in the food supply for every man, woman, and child in the country to 4,000 calories. So there's an increase of about 1,000 calories a day during the period from 1980 to 2000. Those calories had to be sold. And the food industry had to look for ways to deal with the sudden increase in competition for food dollars. And in order to sell more food, they devised new products, they put foods absolutely everywhere, and they created a social environment that made it socially acceptable to eat anywhere, any time of day, and in very large portions. So not only are we eating more calories than people were before, we can eat it anywhere, anytime, and no one will bat an eye. And this change in eating habits has happened in pretty much all westernized countries. At least in Canada, junk food is pretty cheap, especially compared to healthy food. I mean, you can get like two liters of soda for like $2, and it's not even that much more expensive than water. So then why is all of this food so much cheaper than healthier foods? Because soda companies get their water from public water supplies. Um, and they get it at a price sometimes that's cheaper than what households in the area pay for it. Uh, so th that's where enormous economies of scale come in. It's where uh, public policies come in. The food companies argue that you don't eat just one food. And if you buy a two liter bottle of soda and drink all of that and all of the calories that it contains, that's your decision. That's a personal decision. It doesn't have anything to do with them. And yet we live in a food environment that promotes consumption of too much of the wrong kind of food at very low cost and very little is done to put restrictions on what food companies can do. What type of junk food do you think is causing the most problems? Well, I don't think it's a question of what type. It's a question of calories. Um, you, you know, if nobody cares about an eight-ounce soda, but people care a lot about a two-liter soda, you know, I mean, if people ate these foods in small amounts, they wouldn't be problems at all. But the real issue is that these foods are formulated to encourage people to eat more of them. You can't eat just one potato chip. Uh, that was a marketing ploy some time ago. It was something that the marketers said, you can't eat just one. It's true. You can't. Um, because these things are formulated to be delicious in a way that... Um, salads are not, for example. Nobody overeats salad, uh, but it's really easy to overeat potato chips. Wait, hold on. Let's, let's go back to that for a second. How does marketing get people, and especially kids, to eat more processed foods? Well, the marketing is done through television, through social media, 
through cartoons, through toys in uh, meals at fast food restaurants. Uh, the marketers are extremely skilled at reaching children. And even though children don't have any money to buy products themselves, they do have the option to, it's called the pester factor, to pester their parents to buy the product. Then there's a whole marketing effort towards teenagers that involves sports figures and music figures and other heroes of adolescence. Uh, that makes it even more difficult. That's true. I mean, I've never seen an ad campaign for okra or bok choy. Mary is talking about what happens in the U.S., but this is important because these types of things, where the government helps food corporations produce food cheaply and market them to kids, they happen in other countries too. I've traveled and seen the same chips, sodas, and candy brands everywhere. I mean, it seems like we're starting to eat more of the same things, no matter where we live. And that's what Malik Batal studies. My name is Malik Batal, and I'm a professor of public health nutrition at the University of Montreal. Since you study how people eat around the world, tell me, how are Canadians doing? Are we eating a lot of processed foods, or are we on the healthier side? I think Canadians, yes, are eating a lot of it, too much of it, because if you look at uh, our health collectively, we are not doing that great. Uh, we have high levels of obesity, we have high levels of diabetes. On average, I think Canadians consume half their calories uh, as pretty much junk. So if we compare our ourselves to the Italians or the French, they consume half the amount of junk as we do here. So we can, we can do better. But if we compare ourselves to the Americans, they consume more junk food than, uh, than Canadians do. Mm, 50%, that's a, that's a pretty high amount. But is this even across different groups? Are there certain types of people that might eat more junk food than others? Uh, if you're younger, unfortunately, you are eating more junk food. Often you're snacking more, you're sitting down to a meal less often than if you're older. And also it depends on, on what your environment offers, right? Like you have some uh, people who are living in faraway communities where the food they can access is pretty much corner store kind of food uh, because of uh, how far the grocery store is or um, how expensive the food is. Some people can have a harder time having access to healthy food. So you study something called the nutrition transition. What is that? What does that mean? And usually the nutrition transition goes in one direction. So it goes from consuming traditional foods or foods um, that are particular to a certain culture towards those foods that are pretty much global, those foods that we can call junk food, that are produced by big, big companies, that are everywhere, that are in fast food restaurants, that are um, advertised very heavily. So this nutrition transition in the West uh, has been happening for a long time. It's happening very fast in other parts of the world. And in certain populations, for example, I work uh, with First Nations, 
and uh, you know the nutrition transition is 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 faster in certain communities because the access has increased to to junk food over the last number of decades. It's it's moving away from usually a diet that is richer in fruits and vegetables when it comes to. Uh, uh, the, the rest of the world to one that is rich in sugar, fat, salt. Malik has observed this nutrition shift happen for a lot of immigrants who moved to Canada. They no longer have easy access to fruits and veggies like they might have had in their home country. So when they move here, a lot of processed foods get added to their diet. And Malik has seen this happen very quickly with more recent immigrants. A colleague of mine, we were part of this research, this researcher's name is Roseanne Blanchet. She uh, interviewed Caribbean and African children in Ottawa, and she asked them to draw uh, the food that they used to consume back home and the food that they now consume in Ottawa. And it was very interesting because you could look at the pictures and you could see the difference. She asked them, um, who did you eat with? So you'd see that picture uh, when they're describing their country uh, that they came from, cousins and grandmothers and etc., and they're having fruits and vegetables and and home cooked meals, and then they come to Canada and they're eating, you know, ready made pizza from the store and and hamburgers, and they're eating that in their nuclear small family uh, or by themselves. So that to me is is a very clear example of how the nutrition transition can happen, and that's because you know, of the environment, whatever you have access to is ends up determining what you consume. We think we have choice in, in what we do and particularly in food, you know, people have preferences and they say, I eat this and I don't eat that, but we are really dependent on what is available to us. That makes a lot of sense. If I loved eating fresh fruits and veggies, but suddenly I popped into a place where they were hard to find or they were really pricey, then I'd probably end up eating more processed foods just because that's what's available. And sooner or later, I'd probably come to like those more. And there are a lot of places in Canada and the US where that's the reality. There's a term called a food desert where access to healthy, affordable food is really limited. And Malik tells me that in many places, like some First Nations reserves, there aren't a lot of healthy, cheap options, and people can't follow their traditional diets either. Many indigenous groups rely or used to rely and still would like to rely on traditional food. So that, that is food that is hunted, fished, or uh, cultivated in the close proximity of where they live. And increasingly, many peoples don't have access to this food anymore. There are many barriers that prevent people from going out to the land and hunting and fishing, for example. Uh, there are barriers uh, because there are regulations. Uh, maybe there are fewer animals out there because of changes in the climate and other changes in the environment because we do mining, we do forestry. So when you don't have access to your preferred traditional food, you have to rely on what's available to you. Processed foods are everywhere and packed with calories. But energy isn't all we need from food. I mean, there's a lot of other nutrients we can't get just from foods like chips or pizza. If someone is eating mostly processed foods, that could really mess up their health and even lead to malnutrition, which can affect people of all kinds of body composition. It has little to do with your weight. Uh, we, we need to 
change our, our image of a malnourished person. Uh, it's not those images of, you know, kids who are emaciated, who are very thin or who have bloated bellies. That's not the only type of malnutrition. Malik also tells me that moving away from a traditional diet has consequences on more than just your body. It is crucial to be able to eat the food that you want to eat uh, as a group, as a people, to eat the food that is uh, spiritually, culturally, emotionally, and nutritionally relevant to who you are. Our connections to food aren't just about nutrition. It's also about strong emotions and our identities. And this shift into heavily processed diets means people are losing connections to recipes and traditions with their family, life skills, and even the land the food comes from. I'll be honest, being surrounded by convenient, yummy, effortless calories doesn't sound like a very bad thing. But I guess we are losing other important stuff like traditions and skills. I just had a weird thought. What if everyone's diet around the world just becomes more and more similar to each other until we're all just drinking blended up food soups in a cup? It's kind of bleak to think of myself having a cave person brain who still hasn't figured out how to navigate a food jungle that's either full of stuff that's not great for me or good stuff that not everyone can afford or access. And I asked Janita about this. I think, unfortunately, I, I don't think we'll really be able to slow down the environment. So is there other ways that we can get used to it? in a society where it's just getting faster and faster and our poor little brain can't keep up? I really think the key is to learn from early on. We really need to embrace more of fruits and vegetables and like having lean meat and fish and nuts and things. All the good goodies that we always, you know, hear from recommendation from nutritionists, but we need to make it more accessible at a price that more people can get them. Uh, it's not to say we shouldn't eat any of that yummy food, you're saying junk food, right, forever again, it's just we need to use it as a treat. And we need to make more available the food that is making us healthy. I wouldn't say the same food that, that we were exposed 10,000 years ago, that will be asking too much. And, and actually, people 10,000 years ago were not perhaps having the healthiest diet because it was unbalanced. Who knows for how long they were suffering for calcium, uh, deprivation or, or they didn't have enough, really enough different type of fats or the vitamins, they didn't have all that they needed. So we are now lucky that we can have access to almost anything we, we need. It's just that we need to learn to access the ones that are healthier more than the ones that are making us sick. Right, so we don't actually want to return to a time where we didn't know where our next meal was coming from or didn't know what vitamins were. We need to adapt this surplus of nutrients into an environment that actually works for us. Marion had some ideas too. I think the evidence for what a healthy diet is is really pretty straightforward. And it's so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can summarize it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So I'd like to see a food environment that makes eating according to those principles much easier. 
I'd like to see fruits and vegetables be cheaper, more readily available, more widely produced. Um, I'd like to see junk food, ultra-processed foods, cost more. Um, so that you had to think twice before buying it. One of my greatest hopes is that kids will learn how to cook. It's fun. Grow food and cook. I have to admit, scrambling an egg is pretty much the extent of my cooking knowledge right now. Ripping open a package or popping something into the microwave seems so much easier. But after talking to these smart people, I kind of realized it's more feeding my brain than nourishing my body. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't eat for pleasure, but I'm seeing that finding a diet that makes us healthy and happy is complicated. Speaking of pleasure, before we go, I have to ask Janina one more really important question. Should I, should I stop eating junk food? Should I stop eating Doritos? <laughs> that is something you should ask your parents, maybe. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm talking now not as a scientist, maybe I'm giving my opinion. Uh, I feel like moderation perhaps is the key. However, we know that the important thing is to have a healthy diet, to have a diet that is diverse. Uh, and if you're replacing some of the nutrients that you need from the diet, you know, some of those fruits and veggies that are packed with vitamins and other nutrients and minerals that you need so your body can work properly, then you're really get, doing a disfavor and you're going to make you sick. That's good. I just, I don't know if I'd be able to say goodbye. I'm sorry. It's, just, <laughs> it's very emotional. Doritos and I have been friends for so long. Don't say goodbye, but don't <laughs> Not have <yet>. it every day. <laughs> Dear Delicious Corn Chip, I'm not saying goodbye to you. I'm just adding more things into my flavor collection, like fresh strawberries or a salad every once in a while. Don't worry, I'll always love you. I'll just see you a little bit less often. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. The show is produced by Judy D. Gu, Eunice Kim, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Our sound designer is Graham McDonald. The theme music is by Johnny Spence, who also helped produce the hit track, Nothing Like a Chip. Shout out to Kian for telling me about your fried chicken obsession. Our sound engineer is Monpere Minuyan, and location manager is Mamere Nikki Poole. Thanks for buying me corn chips and showing me some other cool foods too. Today, my guests were Janina Papino, Marian Nessel, and Malik Patal. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arup Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.